I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's podcast has been sponsored by Libro.fm Audiobooks. Libro, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated lists from people like me who know books best and also from local booksellers. You can go on Libro.fm playlists and look at the Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books playlist and go from there. If you enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you'll, at checkout, you'll get three audiobooks for the price of one. So please check it out. Z-I-B-B-Y, three audiobooks for the price of one. I'm here today with Caitlin Mullen, who's the debut author of Please See Us. Caitlin received her BA in English and Creative Writing from Colgate University, an MA in English from NYU, and an MFA in Fiction from Stony Brook University. At Stony Brook, she taught undergraduate creative writing, served as an editor and contributing writer at the Southampton Review, and worked as a bookseller at Word in Greenpoint. She has been the recipient of fellowships and residencies from the Salton Stahl Foundation and the Vermont Studio Center. Her short fiction has appeared in Joyland, Blackbird, Meridian, The Baltimore Review, and Day One. Originally from upstate and the Jersey Shore, she currently lives in Brooklyn. So welcome, Caitlin. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for having me. And Caitlin and I were just commiserating over kids who don't sleep. She's a four-month-old, and we're going to go easy on her <laughs> because she didn't sleep at all last night. But welcome anyway. Thank you so much. <laughs> please see us. Tell listeners, please, what this is about. Sure. Please see us takes place over the course of a single summer in Atlantic City. At the beginning of the novel, we learn that the bodies of two women are hidden in the marsh behind this seedy Atlantic City motel. But no one knows they're there or even that they're missing. And then we meet Clara. Clara is our first main character. She is a recent high school dropout. She's working as a boardwalk psychic. And she and her aunt run this shop, but they're having trouble making ends meet. The casinos have been shutting down. There haven't been as many tourists in Atlantic City. And Clara also starts having these disturbing, violent, powerful visions, and she doesn't understand what they mean or where they're coming from. And then we meet Lily. Lily's our second main character. Lily has recently moved back to Atlantic City after starting her career in New York City in the art world, but that all fell apart in one disastrous, ill-fitted evening for her. So she's working as a receptionist at a casino spa, and Lily and Clara set out to try and figure out what Clara's visions might mean, what is happening to women in Atlantic City, and is there any way they can possibly help these women? So why this book? Why, how did you pick this topic? How did you get involved in it? Yeah, so I grew up outside of Atlantic City, and the book is inspired by true events. In 2006, the bodies of four women were found in the marsh behind a seedy motel on the outskirts of Atlantic City. The crime hasn't been solved, so no one really knows what happens. And I was away at college during the time, so I wasn't in the area when, when the events occurred. But every time I came home from college, I would drive by this scene, this marsh where these women were found. And I just found it so heartbreaking and so sad. And I 
was haunted by it. So when I went to get my MFA and started work on a novel, I decided to explore the the crime and a little more deeply. And did you always know you wanted to be a novelist? Oh, I mean, like a lot of writers, I was a really bookish, quiet kid. I could just spend hours by myself in my room reading books, and that was just heaven. I didn't think of writing novels as something someone could just do. I thought you had to be so special and, you know, anointed in some way. So it took a long time for me to come around to the idea that I could actually write a book and I could go to graduate school for writing and maybe come out of that with a novel of my own. So it took me a little while to get there, but I always loved reading. I worked in publishing in my 20s and was around books. You know, I structured my entire life around being around books. But it, it took me a little longer to get to the point where I thought I could write a novel. So what, what was the turning point? When did you say, okay, fine, I'm going to do it. Why not me? Oh, I, I remember that moment distinctly. I was working, at this point, I wasn't working publishing anymore. And I had taken this marketing job that I just hated. And the people at work were so mean to each other. And it was just not a nice place to work. So I went to this family party and everyone's asking, like, what are you doing? Oh, you know, what, what are you doing at your job? And I remember explaining to people what I was doing and thinking, like, I don't care about this at all. Why am I doing this? Why am I taking the plan B path first. Why aren't I doing plan A first, which is what I really want to do and write a novel. So I applied to graduate school a couple weeks after that. And that was it. And was this your, did you write this as your MFA thesis or did this come after? Or what was the process for writing this book like? I did. So I started my MFA with another book in my mind. And it was a book that was also set in South Jersey that also explored the area in the wake of the casino shutting down and the, you know, 2008 economic collapse and Storm Sandy. But I sort of took a break from that book between my first and second year of graduate school and started this book as a, you know, like alternate novel to that book. I, and then I was quickly much more consumed by the themes of this book, by the characters, and it just took over. And it was my MFA thesis. MFA thesis. And then what happened? And then, so at the end of my MFA program, I had a meeting with an agent before I graduated. And she and I just clicked. It was just good luck that this was the right reader for my novel. This was the person who had a vision for how we could edit it moving forward. And I just, that was really lucky for me. And she and I talked about some changes that we could make. I spent the summer working on those changes. And I also was the recipient of a residency at the Sultanstall Colony in Ithaca, which is a really, really wonderful residency for New York State-based writers and artists. And I just spent my month there with pages pinned to the wall and post-its everywhere. And it was like my beautiful mind, John Nash moment, just would unfurl sheets of butcher paper and scribble all over it and do timelines. And I was sort of spat out on the other side of that experience, feeling like, this is my book. It's finally at the place where it's meant to be. And yeah, we had a few more rounds of smaller edits after that, but that was pretty much the book that got submitted to publishers. Oh my gosh, and then it sold, and that was it, end of story. Yeah, and of course I worked on it with my editor after it sold, but I, I think, you know, when you hear a lot of stories about writers, it takes a long time to find an agent and a publisher and an editor that you click with, and I was just really fortunate that those things clicked into place. 
And the book is good. I mean, that's why. You're not just, not just like it got plucked from obscurity for no reason. I mean, you're a really, really great writer. And thrillers are so popular, and it's great. It's like a, the combination of a lot of very marketable, awesome yeah. factors. Yes, yes, that also helped. <laughs> I also found it so interesting. You used to work at Word Bookstore. I did. Which I've been to, which is fantastic. I love independent bookstores. What was it like having that point of view, that you could see sort of what people were buying and mm. just getting the inside look into a bookstore life and then having a book that now you're having your launch event there, which is so perfect, full circle. Yes. I wish every author would have the chance to work at a bookstore. It was just such a formative experience for me in that I would be shelving books and, you know, I would have spent the morning working on my own novel and I would shelve other people's books and say, well, they did it. They figured it out. This person figured it out. It made me see it as something more obtainable. I got to meet authors who were my heroes, you know, when they would come in for events and come in to sign stock. And I also, I think it made me think about, you know, when you're selling books, you have a short amount of time to tell a customer why you're so excited about a book, what makes it different from every other book in the store, why should they spend their money and their time on this book. And then I was able to think about my book in that sense too. You know, if this were a book in a bookstore, what would someone say about it? What would they hopefully find exciting about it? And I think that was a really useful opportunity for me to get out of my own head. You know, you spend so much time writing this book in your own head and it put me in the reader's shoes, which was beneficial, I think, to jolting myself out of my own brain. I interviewed Mary Laura Philpott, who works at Parnassus Books. And she said, part of what inspired I Miss You When I Blink, I hope I got that right, I Miss You When I Blink, is that she wanted to find something on the shelf like that, but couldn't. And so that, like, inspired yours. Did you have any of that sort of, like, I want a thriller, but I want it like this, or there's not a book about South Jersey, or there's not a book about this crime, or was there any of that type of, I need to fill this void? For sure. I mean, I definitely believe in that advice, the write the book you wish existed, write the book you'd want to read. It was a bit of all those things. It was a sense that people aren't really writing about South Jersey, and since I grew up there, I had this well of knowledge and experience and knew the textures of the places pretty well. It was the idea that I wanted to write a thriller that was, in my mind, a little bit of an inversion of a typical thriller Mm -hmm. in that a lot of those books start out with the murder or discovery of a body as the inciting incident for the plot, Mm -hmm. and then you leave the victims behind or you're following a police detective who, in a lot of cases, is a man as he's going to go crack the case and deliver justice. And so I wondered what a thriller would look like that also gave the victims more of a voice throughout the book. So the book features stories from the point of view of the murdered women, both leading up to their deaths and afterwards as a way to incorporate them more fully in the story. So cool. So not to delve into your personal life too much, but did anything in your own family background inspire this book or your writing or has having a new baby changed the way you see the world? Anything about those yeah. relationships? Well, I think, I mean, I have a daughter and this book is very much invested in the way the world treats women, the way violence is committed against women in these heinous, horrible, huge ways and in sort of smaller day-to-day ways. So when I think about you know, the kind of world I want my daughter to grow up in or the kind of person I want her to be. I don't want her to be a person who has to spend her life worrying about the things that maybe I've had to worry about or the things that my mom's generation had to worry about or the way, you know, her mom's generation had to worry about things. I mean, we're not, you know, she's not going to live in a perfect world, but my hope is that it will be one that's safer for women and more encouraging of women in, in a lot of ways. 
Tell me about these visions that Clara has. Yeah. So Clara and her aunt Des have a store. They're like handing out little cards on the street that everybody drops two seconds later. It's like completely demoralizing. And yet she has all these visions that keep coming back to her. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with that? And also, have you ever had any visions? I'm assuming no, but you never <laughs> know. This could be like the best question ever. So I don't have any visions like Clara, for better or for worse. When I was writing Clara, I wanted, she was a character who didn't have a lot of power, right? She's 16. She's a high school dropout. Her aunt, in a lot of ways, manipulates her, coerces her into doing things she doesn't really want to do. And I wondered well, what if she really was psychic? What if this wasn't a sham or a con? What if she did have some sort of power that she could use to her advantage? I mean, she doesn't always understand what her visions mean and her gift, as she calls it, is is limited in some ways. But it was a lot of fun for me as a writer to play with what is, you know, in an otherwise very realist novel, something touched with magic. And I also, I got to do a lot of research with tarot, which was really fun. So Clara reads tarot cards to, you know, pay her rent. And so every time Clara would give a reading in the book, I would take my tarot cards out and I would deal a reading and I would use whatever came up no in, the scene in the book. And I kept them all. They were totally on point. It was very eerie. So I don't have visions, but that made me feel like I had a little bit of, you know, Interesting. In my spare time, I would like to be a tarot card reader. That would be so cool. Yeah. It's a really interesting tool for introspection. I know a lot of writers use tarot. Really? Yeah. I'm like late to the party here. Wow. Yeah. You should try it. It's fun. (laughs) The scene where Des makes Clara dye her hair this like ungodly shade of red in Mm -hmm. order to perhaps attract suitors and go on to this new adventure she has in mind. And then she has to then be out in the world with this like horrific <laughs> new identity. Yeah. Uh, tell me more about that decision. And I can like, I, I was like, maybe Caitlin will come with this shade of red to sort of <laughs> channel the the hair dye job that she put in her book. Well, it's sort of funny. Last year when I, around the time I was getting my author photo done, I had gone to a salon and gotten my hair done and I wasn't even thinking. And they're like, we want to you know, take you a little more red. And I was like, sure. Okay. And then in the author photo, I'm like, oh, wow, okay, this is sort of like Clara. I feel a a shift in who I am because I'm not a redhead. This feels like a different person. So, yeah, I was really interested in exploring the ways that, the ways, you know, we represent ourselves externally, how they do or don't match up with who we are internally. And in this case, Clara is not someone who goes around with bright red hair seeking attention. You know, she would rather be more watchful and, you know, on the sidelines of things, observing and she feels like this hair just puts her in the middle of everyone's, you know, attentions, unwanted attentions. And let's talk a little about Lily, who yeah. came from like this, you know, it girl type person in the art world and then has this very unpleasant experience and ends up sort of, you know, coming back home on her hands and knees and mm-hmm. trying to find her way in the world. And the interview you had with her trying to get a job at the spa, it was like so real. Like I just could see the whole scene playing out and how far she had come and how she was like desperate for this job. And yet, I don't know. Tell me more about this scene. Yeah. So... I, like Lily, worked at a casino spa in my summers no off way. from college. Okay, it seemed very real, so <laughs> that's why. If you had told me then that I was going to write a novel partially inspired by my experiences working at a spa, I would have said you were totally insane. Everything but is coffee, here right? Here we are. Yeah, the whole thing? <laughs> exactly. No it's all come back to me in 
totally been grist for the mill. So yeah, I worked at a casino spa in Atlantic City. My dad worked at casinos. My grandmother worked at casinos, you know, went back to work after raising six kids. So in a way, it was just in my blood. It was what you did. And and yeah, it was a really interesting environment. The spa was supposed to be this place that was really serene and calm. And then out, just outside the doors, you have the chaos of the casinos and all the colors and sounds and the craziness that comes with that. And there were these women like Clara and Des who would come to the spa and they would say, oh, please let me read your palm or let me tell you your future. And, you know, and then you let me back into the spa and let me use the jacuzzi. It was so ridiculous kind of thing that maybe could only happen in Atlantic City. I don't know. and And the theft element too? Yeah, they would put samples of products in their purse. Like if you had a tester bottle out in the open of, you know, some of the more expensive products, they would just swipe them. They would get their eyebrows waxed and then they would like scratch, scratch, scratch their eyebrows and say, oh, look what she did to me. She no. made me, you know, she injured me. I can't pay for this. It was wild. I would love to have like a customer facing experience like that. I worked at Weight Watchers for a little while oh and like God. weighed people in and restocked the shelves. And then I ended up being a leader at the meetings. I know this is like in another lifetime for me, but interacting with people, yeah. like, especially at like a sensitive time where they're like weighing themselves and everything. Yeah. And then having to, you know, process the payments for like the two point bars and everything. I don't know. It was eye opening. Yeah. Being just like customer facing in that way and seeing all the different types of. I always say that was the hardest job I ever had, you know, and customer service is so hard and people bring a lot of guilt and baggage to those situations. I mean, Weight Watchers, I can imagine it would be very similar. And I feel like people don't really have respect for people in general who are like checking them out. Yeah. You know, it's like all about, you know, you just don't think like, I wish people would stop and be like, well, what does this person have going on? Yeah. You become invisible, right? Especially in a tourist town, it's everyone's bending over backwards to serve the customers who come there they're supposed to do so in a way that's totally invisible to those customers. Like you can't see that labor happening. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I do this now. (laughs) Don't have to weigh people. Yeah, exactly. So in this chapter called Jane Four, Mm -hmm. you write, you are happy until you're not. It happens as quickly as someone throwing a bucket of cold water over your head. So I was just wondering if you had a moment that you could think of that maybe you were really happy and then you had a bucket of cold water thrown over your head. Maybe you could tap into that moment that you described. Yeah. And when I think about that character, she's describing a moment when the narrative she's telling about herself changes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she had a very troubled childhood and then was adopted by her aunt and uncle who gave her this really nice life. And she starts to tell herself that, oh, I I don't deserve these good things or my old life is just going to come back and, and claim me. And this really damaging narrative seeps in and that can be really dangerous the stories you start to tell about yourself and it can really affect your happiness and it's so insidious a much more low stakes example maybe in my life was and you know you go to a writing workshop and you'd have your you know nice new story to share with people and you maybe would have an experience where the people in the workshop weren't seeing what you were seeing and they'd go around the table and heap criticism on your story and so you know I'm sensitive person. That's a tough situation to be in. And I would leave those situations and be like, well, clearly I'm a failure. Clearly I'm not meant to do this. And that was the narrative that would stick for a little while. So nothing quite as drastic as what happened to that character. But I do think in a lot of ways, I wanted to use the book to explore the ways that the narratives we tell about ourselves can really impact our choices. And how did you bring yourself back, for instance, in those workshops? And 
how did you regroup and say, you know what? No, I am a good writer and I'm going to keep doing this. Because I feel like this crisis of confidence is what separates people who end up getting published and people who don't. And maybe the talent is equivalent, maybe it's not, but it's the determination and having to go forward and something inside you that like makes you keep doing it. So tell me about yours. <laughs> yeah, I think ultimately it comes down to for me, for better, for worse, I'm a very stubborn person. <laughs> so even when I would have those experiences where I was inclined to be susceptible to another narrative about myself, I would always try to write my course and say, okay, but this is what you want to do. You don't have to be successful at everything, every step of the way. You're, everyone has fallbacks in the writing world. I mean, a lot of writers' careers are much more full of rejection than they are of celebration, and that's just the life, and that's something you have to get used to. So, you know, the process of going through graduate school made me a lot better <laughs> at handling those experiences. But yeah, I think as a writer, you really have to be prepared to pick yourself up time and time again because not everyone else will do that for you. And so this is your debut novel. Very exciting that's coming out. Are you freaking out? Are you excited? Are you, is there something you're particularly looking forward to in the tour or anything? Or? Yeah, it's, it's a mix. And that's, I never thought I would say that because I, you, know, you look forward to publishing a novel if you want to be a writer for years and years. And there's something... A little scary about putting yourself out there, about putting your work out there, even though, you know, in this case, this is fully a work of fiction. It's not autobiographical in any sense. But yeah, it's a little scary, but mostly exciting. I mean, I am, like you said, I'm really excited for the launch at Word and to come full circle. You know, I remember eating my lunch in the basement in my Converse and jeans and being like, maybe one day Aww. I'll be back <laughs> with a book. And so to see that happen, it was really rewarding. That's so awesome. I love it. Do you have any other books in the works or anything coming next or movies? Or tell me, there must be, what's next? What's coming? So I'm working on a new novel now. I've been working on it for about a year. It's still, though, in that very messy, undefined stage. So I don't want to say too much about it, but it's set in upstate New York at this isolated ballet school for talented teenage ballet dancers. I'm really interested in what happens to people in isolated, close-knit communities. I'm really interested in ambition, particularly female ambition. So this is a way to dig into all those themes. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. Very cool. Thriller still or not so much? Maybe some thriller elements, but yeah, it's still still a little early to know, I think. Well, that sounds awesome. (laughs) It's really fun research, getting to watch ballet clips on YouTube and learn all the dancing terms and how dancers break in their point shoes. You should talk to, I had a a former dancer on the podcast, her name's Sienna Siegel, and she wrote a whole book to dance and used to be a professional dancer. Oh, She got injured and stopped, but you could talk to her for research. (laughs) Any advice to aspiring authors? And you just gave some a minute ago about not giving up, but anything else, especially coming off your first novel? Yeah, I think uh, when I taught writing, I used to tell my students this all the time, Don't be afraid to make a mess your first draft. Be really forgiving of yourself, which again is something I have to remind myself of all the time because that's a hard thing to put into practice. But just get in the habit of finishing something, not of making it perfect. And then once you have a full draft of your poem or your story or your essay, then you go back and shine it up and you can be a little more ruthless on yourself when you're editing. But just let yourself finish things. Yeah, that's that's my best advice. That's a great that's great advice, not even for writing. That's just good life <laughs> advice. Just get things done. Because, yeah. you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Right. There's always this moment of translation where like the beautiful, perfect thing in your head 
and the difference between what it actually is in the world. And you just have to forgive yourself when they don't match exactly. This is like the difference between my first kid's birthday party and my last kid's birthday <laughs> party. I have like my, my aspirations for perfection and like all the details. And now like my last kid, I like make one phone call. I'm like, do you have parties there? Can you do it? <laughs> yes, I want the full package. Okay, see you then. Bye. Thanks. <laughs> Can we order some pizzas? All right. Yeah. But you know what? That kid, and, you know, my fourth kid ends up being a lot happier because right? I'm not so stressed fun. about it. <laughs> so you live and learn. Anyway. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Mom's No Time to Read Books. And thanks for this fabulous book. Please see us, Caitlin Mullen. So thank you so much. Congratulations. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks to Libro FM for sponsoring today's episode. Remember to go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M to get your next audiobook, support a local bookseller, and enter code Zibby for three audiobooks for the price of one. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. Thank you.